Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchais, the laws of Tumas, Ochalin, impurity of food matters, Pedak Shisha, also chapter 16, and with Mazal and Bracha, we conclude this section today. We will have concluded 16 chapters of Hilchais, Tumas, Ochalin. Aleph 1. In general terms, call Ha'agudais, Shebashvokim, if you're walking down the marketplace, you're in the farmer's market, and you find a bundle of vegetables. Question, is it pure or is it impure? Because uh, you need to go to the base of Migdash. You can't afford to become impure. Can you take this bundle of vegetables? Can you buy it? The whole hakmochim and all of the flour that you buy for baking purposes. We're not talking about the flours that you give to somebody. We're talking about baking flour. The whole haslosis and all the fine flour. Shebeshwokim, which are in the marketplace. You're in Ralph, so you want to know if you can buy a bundle of veggies, a bundle of carrots, or flour. So he says you can assume that becheskas muchshorim, that they have been ready to accept impurity because they have been exposed to water. And as he says in paragraph 2, and we also have to assume that in a marketplace, somebody impure touched it. Because when people are in stores in a marketplace, they pick it up, they put it down, they pick it up, they check it out, and so on and so forth. Ha'aguda is bundled vegetables with meshadarkon, lezalef ha'mayim aleyem tomit. Because if you have a classy store, you ever go into Gelson's here, they're always watering the vegetables. They're spraying water on the vegetables. Why do you spraying water? So make it fresh, make it pretty. So that's called putting water on. It's always ready. It always has liquid placed on it intentionally. And the flour and fine flour, as a rule, when the wheat, the kernels of wheat are crushed in a mill, it's washed first. The kernels of grain are washed first, and afterwards they are ground. So also wheat, which are ground, and broken up into two pieces, or broken up into three pieces, to be cooked as groats. You can assume that the bottom line is, is that you can assume that the kernels were first watered down, first made wet, whether in the marketplace or in private homes, because they're washed to remove their shells, so that's another form of exposure to liquid. Therefore, for all practical purposes, bundles of vegetable and flour should be considered having, exposed, having been exposed to liquid, and therefore, in two, all of the above, which have to be considered on the average that they were already exposed to liquid, we also have to assume that they are impure, because everybody is touching them. And they are ready to receive impurity. So you must surely assume that someone impure touched them. However, regarding all of them, even a non-scholar is trustworthy and credible, has credibility to say, these were not watered down, they're not ready. Surely other foods which have no assumption upon them, as mentioned here, that a ignorant person, meaning a non-chaber, we learned earlier that a scholar is someone who is licensed to maintain ritual purity. The opposite of a scholar who is licensed to maintain ritual purity is a regular person who is called an amahor, a person who occupies himself with everyday earthy activities. Now comes the next interesting law. What about fish? So he says, The average fish, we have to assume that it has been made susceptible to take on impurity. Now what's the question? The fish is in the water. The answer is the, the water that the fish is in doesn't count. Because it has to be where you want to make it wet. You don't want to make the fish wet. They're there before you want. Nevertheless, you assume that they have been made wet in the fishing process, as he explains soon. An ignorant person, meaning not a chaver, is not credible to say, no, these have not been readied for impurity, meaning made wet. Lefikar, therefore, le'elam, always, as a rule, hadogim becheskestumah, we have to assume if we see fish, herring, <laughs> sushi, that fish is considered impure. Hadogim fish, bein shetzidon becherem, bein bekopo, bein bemitzidah, no matter whether they were caught in a large net, in a small net, or in a snare, various ways of catching fish. Im le'niyir esametzidah le'em, if he knows clearly that he did not take the net after he caught the fish and turned it over... Then, if he's meticulously certain that that didn't happen, they do not become ready for impurity. That's the exception to the rule. Why? Because then and only then did the person put the liquid on them. When he turns the net over. But if he doesn't turn the net over, then the liquid that is already on them from the water doesn't count. But if he shook it, as people do, they shake the net. Then it has become ready because the person intended for the water to shake off. 
and a regular person is not trusted to say, they are assumed to be impure. Until a person says, I'm going to catch these fish, I'm going to maintain ritual purity, I'm going to make sure that I don't turn over the net, I don't shake the net, so that water not intentionally be placed on the fish. So what we have over here, is that whenever there is fish, it's very difficult to maintain ritual purity for fish because the average person turns nets and shakes nets and so on and so forth. Now, what about something that was very popular back then? It's probably popular today too. I just don't know the name for it. But the halachic name is fish brine. They used to make this spicy, salted liquid, I mean, probably like herring juice, <laughs> from fish. And it, it was azoinks and azoinks. They would dip bread into it and do all kinds of stuff with this fish brine. Now, fish brine comes from fish. We just said that the average fish should be considered impure. Kol hatsir, all fish brine, becheskes moksha should be assumed to have been readied with liquid. What kind of liquid? Fish brine is brine from fish, it's not liquid, because they would add water to it. And the water is a liquid. It's here, Tahir, what if you have pure fish brine? Where even a little bit of water fell in, and there's varying opinions. This is rooted in the Mishnah, in the tractate Machshidin. Varying opinions. One opinion says there was no water at all, and by putting a little bit of water in, it adds a liquid to it. But the commonly accepted opinion is that when fish brine is made, 50% water is added, which means equal part fish brine, equal part water. When you add a, t- a tiny drop of water, it becomes 51% water. And that makes it more water than fish brine. That's why it becomes ready. The whole thing should be considered as the liquid that makes something susceptible. And it makes it susceptible for impurity. And it becomes impure to us from impurity of liquid. Therefore, I must assume that it is tome impure. Not by the say, what if other liquids fell into it, such as yayin wine, dvash, Bihani, Bechalov, and milk, which are all liquids that also ready for impurity. It depends. We need to have majority of a liquid that readies for impurity. So also fruit juices, which we said earlier, does not ready for impurity, that became mixed with other liquids. We always use the majority. But if there is any amount of water added to it, water added to the fruit juice, and we touched upon this earlier, it all becomes a liquid that makes ready for defilement. And it becomes impure, with the impurity of liquids, and it readies. Now, there are, as we've learned many times, kosher locusts, which... We can't identify today because we don't clearly know the signs, but there are species of locusts that are kosher. We talked about them earlier, but then there are tzir, the brine of chagobim tmeim of non-kosher locusts. This brine does not ready for impurity. But it becomes impure with the impurity of all other liquids. Five, if somebody buys fish brine from a non-scholar, there is a problem. We have to assume that the fish brine has been mixed with water. We don't know exactly how much water. It has to be 51% water. Then We learned earlier a trick that when you have water that's impure, you can pour the water, the impure water, into the mikvah and the water will mix with the water, and it will become pure. Because mixed water is pure. That's the only thing you're allowed to pour into a mikvah, it will become pure, and then you take it out. I mean, you take out water. You're not sure which water you take out. So, mashika, he can have it touch or kiss. The mayim water, and it's pure. How could it be? If the majority of this fish brine was water, then it has a law of water. Water becomes pure in a mikvah. If the majority of this fish brine was the salt of the mixture, then it doesn't become impure to begin with. It doesn't take on impurity. And the amount of water in it becomes nullified because it is a minority. When does this apply? If the fish brine is being prepared as a dip. You're going to take bread, delicious bread, and dip it into the fish brine as a dip. Because that was very popular back then. But if you're going to use the fish brine as a cooking substance, you're going to put it in water. Then there's nothing to talk about because, and here he uses a poetic expression, then one species found its own species, the water, finds the water, then here it becomes mixed with the water. So the majority of water is considered impure. Because the minimum in the fish brine has not been purified in the mikvah. The average produce should be assumed to be pure. You don't have to assume that the produce has been wedded and is impure. Even if the seller was not Jewish, it makes no difference. Why? Because even though rabbinically a non-Jew touches something, it is considered rabbinically impure. For based on Bigdash purposes, nevertheless, we don't know that it's ever been exposed to moisture to take on the impurity. Until you know for a fact that it has been ready, or it should be of the list of things where we have to assume that they have been ready. He talks now about a particular product called sumac berries. And he says here that our translation is based on the Rambam's commentary to the mission in Caleb 26.3. A shrub of the Rus, R-H-U-S, genus, G-E-N-U-S, that has clusters of green flowers, red hairy berries, and feathery leaves. Sounds scary to me. So this og, this sumac berries, 
Wherever they are, you have to assume they're impure. All the type of produce, such as zucchini, squash, and other vegetables that are commonly hung by reeds at the entrance of stores. The cheskas mukshorim mutmein. You have to assume that they have been ready by exposure to liquid, and you have to assume that they've been touched by people, because everybody on their way into the store will touch these. And now, beginning with paragraph eight through paragraph twelve, for the next four paragraphs, the Rambam tells us some wonderful, wonderful information. General information in his closing four paragraphs says that Rambam in eight kol hakosav in general everything written in the Torah or the Dibri Kabbalah everything written in the tradition of the oral law mehilches hatumes vaporis about regarding the laws of impurity and purity don't think that this refers to everyday life. As I have emphasized tens and tens of times since we began learning this, this is only for the matter of Nigdosh, when one wants to enter into the base of Nigdosh. When one wants to partake in its holy foods. When a Kohen wants to partake in Truma. Or somebody wants to indulge in the second tithing, which has to take to Jerusalem, maintain ritual purity. In these matters, one must maintain ritual purity. Why? Because the Torah warned someone who was impure and forbade him from entering the base of Nigdosh. Or eating Kodesh holy food, sacrificed food, a Truma, or Kohen food, or first tithe, in a state of impurity. That's what this is all about. You're going to the base of Nigdosh. You're going to eat Truma. You're going to eat of a Sacrifice. You're going to eat of your second tithe food. You must maintain, you must maintain ritual purity. But everyday mundane food. What if somebody just wants to have a, a tuna fish sandwich? He wants to have some sushi. Is it a problem if he's not pure or if the food is not pure? Ain't bahem isur cloud. There is no prohibition whatsoever. You can eat food that's not pure as long as you're not planning to engage in based on English activity. Elamuter to begin with, you could be the greatest tzaddik. It is permissible lechel to eat chulin everyday food, not sacrifice food, not rumah, not meiser. Tmeim, which is defiled, it's okay. Food was defiled, you can eat it. Relishtes, you can drink. Mashkim, tmeim, liquids that are impure. It's not a problem. Don't think it's a problem. And this sheds light on the whole body of law here. We're concerned when you're engaging in special activities, such as going to the base on Nikdash, eating sacrifices, eating truma, eating second time, then you have to maintain ritual purity. On an average Wednesday, you don't have to maintain ritual purity. You become impure, you go to the mikvah, you become pure. Of course, you know, the more serious type of impurity, such as exposure to a corpse, takes more than mikvah. But we learned all those laws. Meat that will touch any impure body should not be eaten. What is that referring to? Sacrifice meat. It's not referring to everyday meat. It doesn't mean a steak. A barbecue. That's not a problem. You can eat the steak in a state of impurity. In everyday food, mutarim is permissible to eat in impurity. This only speaks of holy sacrifice meat contained in that days. This seems to be, says the Rambam, now confusing. If the fact is that everyday mundane food, mundane food does not have to maintain ritual purity. Why do we talk about the first derivative in everyday food is impure? The second derivative in everyday food is not impure, but it's disqualified. You just said that everyday food is not a problem. So he says, good question. This does not mean it's not permitted to eat it. It doesn't mean it's forbidden to eat it. The reason we need to know if this everyday food is impure, because we know that derivative one is impure. And derivative two. Derivative three is something that makes truma. Or sacrifice food impure. If your everyday food, which you're allowed to eat, touched rumah food, derivative three, or sacrifice food, derivative three, or four, it conveys impurity. But it doesn't mean that the everyday food is prohibited. It's the sacrifice and the truma that's prohibited. Derivative two, mundane food, touched with Coin food, solo, it invalidates it, it disqualifies it, also, she makes it derivative three. As we learned extensively earlier, the Hanging Noga Bachel Shakedish touched sacrifice food, Kimon, it made it impure. Basso and Shlishi made it derivative three. We learned earlier that sacrifice food carries over even to derivative four. To make sure Bianca, as we explained, the Hanging Noga Bachel Shakedish, if somebody consumes derivative two of everyday food, which he's allowed to do, if Noga Batruma, if he then goes and touches Truma before he purifies himself, solo, he disqualifies the Truma. Test the Rambam goes on to tell us these general laws, Kashem Shemutar, Lechachol and Tamei just as it's permissible to eat everyday mundane food, and which are impure, and to drink them, Kachmutar, Ligrim, Tumel, Chum, Shemutar, it is actually permissible to intentionally cause produce to become impure, even in Israel. There's no sin. There's no sin to taking pure food and making it impure. In other words, what if somebody's not pure? Can he take pure food and eat it? Absolutely. What if somebody has pure food? Can he defile it? Absolutely. As long as it's not trauma, as long as it's not a sacrifice, as long as he's not going to the base of English. He may defile. Everyday food that has been prepared 
for holiness to begin with it is furthermore permissible for a person to touch anything that's impure and to intentionally defile himself no problem as long as he has no plans to go to the base of or to eat sacrifices or to eat truma or to indulge in second tithe food the proof is the Torah admonishes the sons of Aaron Kohanim not to defile themselves the Asandosir the Torah admonishes the Nazir not to defile themselves from becoming defiled with death this teaches us that everybody is permissible so therefore practically speaking somebody comes to a rabbi even during the time of the base of the and says listen my friend's grandfather passed away can I go to his funeral the answer is of course you can you're not a Kohen if you're a Kohen even today you shouldn't because Kohanim must maintain ritual purity as much as possible even today a Kohen can only go to the funeral of his seven closest relatives we know but if somebody's not a Kohen and he's not a Nazir he can intentionally defile himself no problem Miklau, from here we see, Shekol, Omutor, and everybody else is permissible to defile them, permitted to defile themselves. By the way, nowadays we're all considered in a state of defilement, and therefore we're waiting for when Mashiach comes, we'll have the mixture of red heifer ashes to purify us once again. It says that the tenth red heifer, nine red heifers were prepared up to now, the tenth will be made by Mashiach. Even a nausea may expose himself to all forms of impurity, except for death. The only special mitzvah is the death, the corpse for the Kohen and for the nausea. But he can touch a rodent, not a problem. He can touch a dead rodent, a dead carcass. Yud, however... During Beis Amigdash time, Kol Yisrael was hardly a state of Every Jew is admonished and instructed to be ritually pure every major festival, Shalosh Regalim, when we have to visit the Beis Amigdash. What are the Shalosh Regalim? Pesach, Shavuos, and Sukkot. Because a Jew must be ready to enter into the Beis Amigdash during the three major festivals. The Jew must be ready to eat sacrifices. Therefore, you come close to the holiday season, you have to be pure. And there's a whole process. You have to have the red heifer sprinkling sprinkled upon you on day three and day seven. Then you have to immerse in the mikvah, you've got to follow the rules. The fact that it says in the Torah, not to touch the carcass of a dead animal. We're not allowed to touch the carcass of a dead animal. Of course we are. Only on the holidays, when you're getting ready to go to the base of English. That's when you have to maintain ritual purity. But ordinarily you're allowed to. And if you do, you have to purify yourself. And if he becomes impure, there's no punishment, there's no lashes, there's no violation. But then, on the holiday season, you have to maintain ritual purity. But all year round, a person is not even commanded to retain or maintain ritual purity. You now live. The verse says, The impure and the pure together. That's a verse. Should eat the food. From tradition we learn, that technically an impure person and a pure person may share a plate. And what if the pure person and the impure person are going to eat from the same plate? The impurity will be conveyed from the impure person to the pure person. So what? It's not a sin. As long as no one's going to do anything holy, like based on Nigash or Puma or Masashi. Now he says, don't assume that that's across the board. And this is halacha that applies today as well. A woman is in her menstrual cycle. Husband and wife should not eat together from the same plate because it gives off a feeling of intimacy. They shouldn't sit from the same cup. She should not even pour the cup of wine for him because it's too romantic. As we explained in great detail in the laws of mikvah, in the laws of the menstrual cycle, Nida which we covered thoroughly, that our sages instituted laws to prevent husband and wife from engaging in intimacy before the woman immerses in a mikvah in the right time. Similarly speaking, if somebody is in a state of zov, where he's experiencing an abnormal flow, he figures, what do I got to lose? I could share my meal with a zov, with a woman experiencing an abnormal flow, or perhaps even with his wife, who's a zov. He says, bad idea, too intimate. Perhaps it will lead to intimacy, because sharing food, you know, laying down a blanket on the beach and having a picnic is something that's romantic. Shema Yivo, we're concerned it will lead to intimacy. But if there are no intimacy issues, there's no reason anyone cannot intentionally become impure. And here the Rambam makes his closing statement. We just spent three paragraphs saying there's nothing wrong with becoming impure, as long as you're not going to the base on English or eating Tumah, or having Maaseh Shani, or eating sacrifices. Now the Rambam flips on us. And he says in 12, in the closing statement, even though we just finished saying it's perfectly permissible to eat defiled foods, we just finished saying it's perfectly permissible to drink defiled liquids. However, the pious people of old, 
the old timers, they took on themselves a practice where their everyday food would be consumed in full ritual purity. And they would be meticulously careful, from all types of exposure to impurity, cool on all of them, call you may in all of their lives. They would always maintain ritual purity. Who are we talking about? The early pious ones. We learned much earlier, and we learned much later. We just learned that there's a name for them. What is the name our sages have given them? They are called Perushim. That's what the sages who undertook ritual purity are called Perushim. What is the word? Perushim means those who separate themselves. This is the root of the term Pharisees, referring to the Talmudic rabbis, the Pharisees. Perushim meaning set aside from mundane everyday life, set apart. And this observance, it's above and beyond the call of duty. It's an additional level of holiness. It's a pathway of piety. That a person should be segregated from everyday from the everyday mundane, and should be segregated from the average everyday people, because the average everyday person gets involved in who knows what. And therefore, you don't have to do what everyday people do. Especially, a scholar should be doing what scholars do. Scholars shouldn't hang around with everyday people. Because a scholar should live a more sacred life. And this lifestyle prevents the Porush from touching the person who does not observe ritual purity. Because again, in Beisam Dindosh time, this touching, in any way, shape, or form, would convey impurity. You shouldn't share a meal with them. So that we know that scholars are involved in scholarship. And here the Rambam closes with the statement from our sages, Shaprishus, because when somebody sets himself aside from the everyday mundane world, it leads to the purity of the body. Mimasim Rahim keeps people away from negative actions. You know, if you don't hang around with negative people, you're not going to get caught in negative actions. And when somebody maintains the purity of his own person, purity of the body leads to purity of the soul. What's purity of the soul? How we think and how we feel. I mean, from negative thoughts, we're going to learn that the whole idea of immersion in a mikvah, which is the number one mode of regaining purity, the Hebrew word for immersion in a mikvah is tefillah, tevila, immersion. It has, the word in a jumbo is habitu, nullification. By immersing my head, even my head in water, I nullify everything I understand to Hashem. So that immersion, purity is bitul. It's humble nullification of self. That's the representation, the symbolism of mikvah. So that when somebody retains or maintains ritual purity, he can hopefully also maintain intellectual purity, where his mind and heart will not hang around garbage cans, hang around the chesu. Because the human mind is always busy. The human mind never stops. And if we don't feed it good stuff, it gets involved in bad stuff. That's the famous teaching in the Joseph story, in the Joseph story, where it says when they threw Joseph into the pit, the pit is empty, it has no water. Says Rashi, it has no water. There was no water in that pit, but there were snakes and scorpions. Symbolically, bear refers to the human mind, a cistern, there was a guy with a photographic memory. He had a cistern of cement that doesn't even lose a drop. So bear is the human mind, the head. When the head is empty. It doesn't have water. When we're not filled with Torah thoughts. That's why we have to study every day. So we can walk around when our minds are empty and think about the Torah we learned. Instead of the garbage. And by the way, when I talk about garbage, I don't necessarily talk about bad things. Depression is also garbage. Negative thoughts is also garbage. I'm never going to make it. That's all garbage. We can't allow our heads to go there. I'm not going to do this deal. That's garbage. Thinking optimistically, that's holy. So in order to maintain the purity of the brain and heart, you have to maintain the purity of the body. Because the first problem, the body gets you into. And the sanctity of the soul, the causes, that we become mirrored in the divine presence. We say, you know what? Let's be like Hashem. We are created in the image of God. Let's act like God. There's a full verse that says, You shall be holy. You shall sanctify yourself. And you shall be holy. Why? Because I got him holy. And the Rambam concludes this beautiful section with the words he always uses. Blessed be the merciful one, Hashem. Who helped us complete this. We've completed the section of Hilchis Tumas Ochalim. Rambam, Mishnah Torah. With Mazel Bracha, we begin a new section. Hilchis Kalim, the laws of Kalim. And as he explains here in the notes, the word Kalim is a broad-based word. The Hebrew word Kalim is the plural of Keli. Nothing to do with the Irish Keli. It's a general term used 
to refer to an article that's used for a specific purpose, a utensil, a vessel. Those are my words. Now the Rambam, in the notes here, rather, in the Mosnaim Rambam, he goes on to explain that it refers to the following list of objects. Containers, garments, furniture, cooking utensils, tools, weapons, and many other types of useful articles. So that's what kalim means. There's one modern English word which covers it all, and that word is called stuff. Kalim means stuff. In the introduction, says the Rambam, Inyan, Elu, Ha'alochas, the idea of these laws are Leda, so that we know and ascertain, Kalim, which stuff, which utensils, Shemekablin Tumah, can take on, accept a state of defilement. Mikol, Elu, Ha'atumah, of all the above, states of defilement, which we learned extensively. Vechalim, She'enon, Mistamin, and which utensils do not take on a state of impurity. Vechetzad, Mistamin, and what is the hows, or Mitamin, and how do they become defiled, and how do they convey defilement? So there is the if, and then the how. The explanation of this idea is upcoming in these chapters. Now, as the Rambam just concluded, in his concluding paragraphs of the previous section of impurity of foods, this is a divine decree. This is decreed by Hashem. Don't try and make sense out of it. It has to do with Beis Hamigdash law. When a Jew would go to the Beis Hamigdash, we needed to maintain purity. When a Jew would eat sacrifices, when a Jew would eat truma, when a Jew would consume second time, Masar Shani, in Jerusalem. Other than that, we don't need to maintain ritual purity, even then. Not to mention now when we don't observe these laws by and large. Now, before we begin chapter 1, where the Rambam begins to build his building, the Rambam is meticulously, brilliantly organized, as we know. And he doesn't need me to say that. I mean, the world knows the brilliance of the Rambam and his organization. But there's an interesting point. The Mishnah has the tractate of Kalim at the very beginning. The order of purity and impurity, Seder, Taharos, begins with Kalim, begins with the laws of utensils. By the Rambam, it ends with the laws of utensils. Because after utensils, all we have is mikvah. Mikvah is how we get out of the state of impurity. So, I'm not sure, and I'm not saying anything authoritative, but to me it appears that the Mishnah does everything as it flows, and... The Mishnah begins with Kalim, possibly because it's the most complex section of these laws. It's the most all-encompassing section. The Rambam ends with Kalim because now that we know everything else, we just need to know where it applies. Those are my thoughts. I'm going to give a little overview, which I took from a website called Vik Yeshiva. Like Wikipedia, Vik Yeshiva. This is a yeshiva, an internet yeshiva, where it gives overview on various laws. And this comes from a section which gives overview to laws of purity and impurity. And he goes on to say that when it comes to utensils, it's divided into four categories. And this is an overview. And we've touched upon all of this stuff in some detail, or in great detail, or in generalities. Number one, category one, are earthenware vessels, which are called klecheres, earthenware vessels. They can only take on impurity from their airspace. So if you bear with me a second, I have a cup in my hand, make believe this was an earthenware cup. If I put my finger in here, I'm in the airspace of the cup. So the impure object has to enter the airspace in order to con convey contamination. Just by touching the exterior of the earthenware vessel, it doesn't work. So that's category one, earthenware vessels. Or by moving the vessel. Category two, and we're going to learn about all these things. The following materials, wood, bone, leather, sack, or sackcloth, and we're going to learn about that. And by rabbinic decree, also glassware, if they have a place where they contain things, for example, a cup can contain, a soup bowl can contain, if it has a place where things can be contained within, if it has a receptacle area, then the above list, again, wood, bone, leather, sack, and rabbinically also glass, if they have a receptacle area within them, they do become impure, but if they're flat, where they have no place that they can receive, such as a mat, then the above list do not take on impurity. Category three, garments. Garments are uh, a very important category of kalim. And klimatres, which is metal, they become impure. Whether they have receptacle areas within them or they don't. So a metal flat board, or, or, or a flat piece of metal, or a mat, for example, made out of garments, out of material, could take on impurity. So that, these are the two exceptions with regard to those that don't need a receptacle. They are material garments and metal. By the way, there is a responsa of probably the greatest halachic authority in our time. Rabbi Moshe Feinstein of Blessed Memory, where Rabbi Moshe Feinstein says when the Torah talks about metal, it talks about metal as the Torah knows it. It doesn't talk about modern day metal-like materials like aluminum. The Torah doesn't know from aluminum. 
So, not that we observe these laws today, but there are areas where we do observe them. Aluminum would not be a metal by Torah law, says Rabbi Moshe Feinstein of Blessed Memory. Interesting point. Category four, the following three categories do not take on impurity whatsoever. What are the following three categories? Stoneware, stuff made out of stone. The heap, that's Kliavonim, stoneware. Glolim. Glolim means they used to, they used to make various things out of hardened animal manure called turds. And, you know, we think about how do you do this. It's disgusting, well, obviously, but there must have been a way where they hardened it so much that it's not recognizable anymore. So this is called turds, or glolium. Also does not take on impurity. Also va'adoma, things made from earth. Not to be confused with earthenware. Earthenware is a process baked in a kiln. Earth is just stuff made out of mud, hardened mud. They are always pure. So these are the four categories. Again, earthenware vessels do become impure only from the inside or if they're moved. Wood, bone, leather, sack, and rabbinically also glass. If they have a receptacle area, they become impure. If they don't, they don't become impure, such as a mat. Category 3, garments, metal, they take on impurity whether they have a receptacle area or not. Stoneware, <coughs> turds, and earth, vessels made out of earth, are always pure. So that's a little overview. Now we get to the Rambam, and again the Rambam always begins with the very beginning. The brilliance of the Rambam. Patriotism chapter 1, Aleph, Law 1. Shiva, Biblically, there are only seven categories of kalim, utensils, objects, stuff, that can take on impurity biblically. And these are the this is the list. Number 1, have God in garments. All garments can take on impurity. Number two, sakin, kalim, or things made out of sackcloth. And he says here, articles or garments made from goat's hair or other coarse fibers, which as a catch-all phrase are called sackcloth. Number three, uchli er, leather, animal skins. Number four, uchli etzem, boneware, stuff made out of bones. Number five, uchli matchas, metalware, things made out of metal. Now, I'm just going to push the pause button for a second, as I like to say. When I say things made out of bone, things made out of metal, they have to be things. They have to be utensils. They have to be something. It can't be the raw material. Because stipulation number one is it has to be a something. Back to the list. Uchli eight, number six, wooden utensils, stuff made out of wood. Number seven, uchli cheres, earthenware. So that's the list. Again, garments, sackcloth, leather, bone, metal, wood, earthenware. How do we know this? So the Rambam, if possible, always refers to the verse. Anyway, the verse says, and there are two primary verses that deal with this issue. Nicole kli eight, from any utensils made out of wood. So there's your wood. A beggar or garment, there's your garment. A beggar leather. So there's your leather. A sock or sackcloth. So there are four out of seven in the Torah. When it comes to metal, the Torah says, and this is in the Midian War, Ahas has the gold, and the silver. So we have gold and silver dealt with as metals. So that's five and six. And earthenware Nemar, it says a whole separate law. That's the unique identity of earthenware. And earthenware, when the impurity falls within the space of it, anything within it, Yitmo shall become defiled. Now, we've learned this previously, but I'm going to emphasize this. And that's actually the next section upcoming after this. And that is mikvah, it's the laws of mikvah. How do you purify many of these materials? <clears throat> you immerse them in a mikvah. Elementary Watson. There's one thing you never immerse in a mikvah, and that is earthenware. Earthenware cannot be immersed in I mean, it can be immersed, but it's not going to help it. As we say in Yiddish, it said, help not like bunkers. How do you remove the defilement status from earthenware? There's only one way. You break it. Once it's broken, it loses the category of a utensil. It's not a utensil anymore. So it's pure. Says the verse, but also, Sishboru, you shall break it. That's how you purify earthenware. You break it. You devessalize it. You reverse the fact that it's a vessel. It's no longer a vessel. Ah, it's not a vessel, so it's not impure. What has to be done to it? Does it need a mikvah? No. Just by losing the definition of vessel, voila, it's pure. Amazing. Two, the Piyashua from tradition we learned, meaning oral law. Torah is made up of written law and oral law. So the Rambam just quoted some written law stuff from the oral law, Shazeshin and the Torah. There is a verse in the Torah that says, Vechomaseizim, and anything made out of goats. Now, all of a sudden, the Torah is saying anything made out of goats. And what about sheep? And what about oxen? And what about. Why goats? He says, Lerabes, Kalim, this expression, Vechomaseizim, all stuff made out of goats includes any utensils or asuyim made out of any part of the goat. Minha Karnayim, including the horns, Omina Tlafim and the hoofs, Omina Tlafim and the bones, shall ease him of the goat. Now, it's not only the goat. But, and this is part of the principles, 13 principles of studying law, that when the Torah says something, it includes everything similar to it. 
everything similar to goats. This includes all other domestic and wild animals. So what does it not include? Ah, I'm glad you asked. Avobot, kalium utensils, or asuyin, which are made, may atzme so'o, from bones of a bird, from bones of fowl. Anon, mekabal, and tumor can never accept impurity. So that's the rule. Chicken bones, turkey bones, uh, anything you want. Eagle bones. Nothing can take on impurity if it is fowl. With the exception of chutz. You know, every rule has an exception. With the exception of mekalim, or asuyin, miknaf, or asnia, from utensils that are made of the wing of an asnia. And when it comes to biblical animals, there are various opinions, and the most naim rambam, or the chayenu, chooses the interpretations of Rabbi Arya Kaplan, a brilliant scholar, who translated it as osprey. An osprey. I have a pet osprey, just kidding. And, ubeitsas hanami samatsupa, and an ostrich egg, again ostrich, that's the translation of Rabbi Arya Kaplan, who, which was coated because the ostrich bone is not strong enough to hold up unless it is coated. Those are the two exceptions, because they are big and they're very utensil-like. Because they are similar to the structure of animal bones. So the law is that they can take on a state of impurity. Like the bone of an animal. These are the two exceptions to the rule. Now says the Rambam, are these biblical laws, these two? These exceptions, is it biblical or is it rabbinic? Says the Rambam, good question. I'm pretty sure that it is rabbinic. And this is an interesting expression where the Rambam says, It's pretty close to my eyes, which means I'm almost for sure. I'm almost certain, but not 100%. Which means this is debated a lot in the halachic works. Gimel. Three. What about... Stuff made from marine life. What about utensils made from dried gebilte fish? No, just kidding. Kalim utensils, which are made, from the bones of Chaya, a living being, Shebayam, in the ocean, marine life. Or from the skin of marine life. Chahedim, they are all pure. Marine life, as a rule, does not take on or convey impurity. Anything from the ocean is exempt. And here the Rambam says it. Kale Shebayam, the rule is, anything in the sea, from sea to shining sea, is pure. And it does not take on impurity from all types of impurities. Nor impurity of moving the object. Especially having to do with Zob and Zoba. With body source impurities. Moving an object is a big deal. Putting pressure on it. We learned earlier that if a Zob lays down on a stack of, on a stack of 20 cots, every one of the 20 becomes impure because of the pressure. So there is no Midras in marine life as well. In skin or bones of marine life. Even from a whale. I once had a couch made out of whale. I'm just kidding. I never even had a couch. We learned about this extensively earlier in the, in the laws of agriculture. There are certain wool-like material that are marine. They grow in the ocean. It looks almost like wool, but it's not wool. So even if somebody weaves from this wool-like material that grows in the ocean, it does not take on impurity. It simply does not take it on. Based on a verse. A The verse says, or a garment, or skin, animal skin. From tradition we learn, just as a garment, has to be a material earth-grown, Meaning, either that which grows from the ground or animal, so also leather, this has to be earth-grown, not marine life. Chibar, but what if he made a mixture, he connected? From that which grows in the ocean. Or in the water. Or that which grows, with that which grows on earth. He combines the two materials. Even one thread or one fringe. If he made a real connection. Until they are united and fused as one, for the, for the purposes of impurity. That if one becomes impure, there is no choice but the other has to become impure because it becomes one. Not that it's similar, but we have a situation called uh, polyester and wool. You know, wool is, is earth-grown. Polyester is uh, synthetic. But when you have a suit made out of polyester and wool, first of all, they don't let you into fancy restaurants if you're wearing polyester. But uh, assuming they don't know. The polyester and wool can't be separated because it's all one mixture. So if you have a marine life type wool mixed with another earth-grown material, then it's one and it does become impure. Now the Rambam says, it appears to me, and whenever the Rambam says it appears to me, it means it's his thought. It's not sourced. By the way, there are scholars who... See, one thing the Rambam did not do is source his material. There are scholars throughout the ages who worked very hard on sourcing. And there are various books printed which source the Rambam. When the Rebbe first came out with this program of daily Rambam study, the Rebbe appointed the members of the Kolel at that time 
and told them to take whatever books there are on sourcing and add to it and research and the Kolo spent a large chunk of time and published a new source book. This law doesn't have a source. This is a Rambam thought. That utensils are sweet which are made from the skin. Leather made out of any type of fowl. Ain't the Kabbalan Tumas simply do not accept impurity. like it's bone. So that anything made of anything that flies doesn't count. Anything in the category of fowl. We pray about but you might challenge this and say, we learned earlier in the laws of film. That under some circumstances you can actually write tefillin on the skin, the leather, the hide, the parchment made out of a fowl. And a wild animal. So that's not a proof. Because you can write tefillin, it doesn't mean it takes on impurity. And the proof is that fish skin also does not take on impurity. It's not for the fact that it's very difficult to really clean up skin of a fish because it's always oily and schmutzy. We learned in the laws of film, it would have been kosher for film, except that he can't get a clean surface. In from here we learn that even something that cannot take on impurity can theoretically be used for film in mainly Zuma, provided that it can be established as a clean, non-aromatic, non-negative aroma surface. Now, by the way, I just want to point out, you may have noticed that I'm going slower here, and I'm doing this because this is a fundamental chapter which will lay the foundation for the next 28 chapters. There are 28 chapters, or for the next 27 chapters. So usually in chapter 1 I go slower so that everybody can really absorb this and take it in. Hey, including me, please hook his glassware, ain't on the Kabbalah Tumi, by Torah law, glassware do not, does not accept impurity. Does not take on a state of impurity. That's my Torah law. Chacham and Barah sages, those who decreed, I lay upon glassware, she Kabbalah Tumi, that they do take on impurity, rabbinically. Why? Because the beginning of the creation process of glassware comes from sand, similar to earthenware. So rabbinically it was made, equal pasqual with earthenware. However, in that case, does it have the law of earthenware also, where it can only become contaminated from the inner space? No, it doesn't. Why? Pourquoi? Because when you have a glass, and my friends, I have a glass I'm holding up right here, I'm going to have a little drink out of my glass. Well, I made a broth earlier. Because the outside of the glass looks like the inside of the glass. You can see through. It's amazing. Our sages, when they made the rabbinic decree, did not decree the mirror image of the earthenware that it only becomes contaminated from its airspace. Because it's kind of not at all earthenware. Like it's, it's like transparent. The decree was, if the impurity touches... It becomes impure. Whether from within, or from without. like metalware. And furthermore, any flat surface object, again, like a glass mat, which is flat, it has no receptacle. Our sages did not apply this decree to. Only on something that has a receptacle. Like the glass I'm holding, it has a receptacle. My particular glass, I don't know if you can see or not, is holding water. Thank God. Or I do it. The of a mikvah. Also, glass, as a rule, cannot become purified in a mikvah. It doesn't become impure by Torah law, it can't be purified by Torah law. Being that it's a rabbinic decree, there's never a condition where, due to the impurity caused by glass, the truma has to be consumed, the Kohen will eat the truma. If it becomes impure, he has to burn it, does not apply. Or the condition was a sacrifice, does not apply. Why? Because it's only a rabbinic decree, and burning truma and burning sacrifices is a very big responsibility, which we only do in extreme situations of biblical law, or extreme rabbinic law, which we've talked about in the past. Shall goes to the The only decree of our rabbis is that this be held in abeyance, that it enter into the suspense column, we wait and see if it becomes impure due to something greater. But until then, we do nothing with it. Moving right along, utensils made of turds. I explained earlier, Kliyabon and stoneware. Kliyabon and stuff made out of earth, mud. Again, not to be confused with earthenware. Earthenware is a process that's heated up in a kiln. Earth is something you make from hardened mud. We can see from this list of materials that they didn't have the ability to, to walk into a Sears and, and buy a set of dishes as easy as we do. So they had to use all kinds of source materials. These three, turds, glassware, and earth. Utensils are always pure. They can't become impure. They cannot take on any form of impurity. The traditional ones, or the fresher ones, not biblically, whether they are flat and have no container, or they have container. Now come some interesting laws, which again sounds a bit strange to us in our world, but it is halacha. Torah, we have to deal with everything. Peel. You have an elephant. An elephant is a big animal. Shebola hutsin. The elephant swallowed twigs. An elephant can swallow anything. The elephant swallowed a stack of twigs. The hikion. And then the, animal, the elephant excreted them in its waste. Derech hori. Through its waste product. So now, you have... Well, the question is, what do you have? 
Do you have elephant excrement? And what we just learned is excrement can never take on impurity. Turds. Is this a turd or is it wood? Because when an elephant swallows wood and excretes the wood, it's still wood. It didn't even change its structure. Elephants are not that good in digestion. But I know about elephants, I'm guessing. they had If somebody makes utensils out of this wood that was excreted by the elephant, the question is, is it turds or is it wood? If it's turds, it can't take on impurity. If it's wood, it can. So which one is it? The answer is, says the Rambam, it's a definite maybe. It's doubtful. If it's like turds, or it's like wood, as it was originally. Why? Because maybe it became a turd. Maybe it didn't. A basket. Shanit mace, which became impure. You have a wicker basket, let's say a basket. That became impure. Of law, of law, appeal, and an elephant swallowed the basket. And it excreted it. The basket was the same basket before and after. So a basket is a basket, and it still is as impure as it was before the elephant swallowed it. What about earthenware utensils that does not have a receptacle area? For example, like a lamp. A lamp burns, but it doesn't have a receptacle. The chise or a chair, the shulchan or a table, shulchan is all made of earthenware. They are not receptacle utensils, furniture. Or similar, because there's no receptacle and it's an earthenware category, it does not take on any impurity. Related to us, it does not even pressure. It just means pushing, pressure impurity. Layman, more moving. Layman, not not by Torah. Actually, it just means pressing. The Midrash is a category, as I explained earlier, that has to do with this up. Lame in a paper, let me do your not biblically, not rabbinically, shanam, as it says, asher yipo mehem el peifah yipo, we brought down this verse earlier. Something will fall within the airspace. Kehoshi yesh leipayit, klichenes, it has to have an airspace. Anything that has airspace within it, the kabbalatumah can take on a state of impurity. The shayin leipayit, if it has no inner, inside, in airspace, toher, it retains purity. Test nine, what about klimatchas, metalware, echa pshutayim, whether it's flat. Kehoshi, what's an example of a flat metal utensil? A knife. Or a scissors. There's no containment area. Or if it does have containment area, like a pot. Or a contain uh, a kettle. It all takes on impurity. As it says, and this is with the Midian war. Any utensil that comes regularly in touch with fire, something you cook with, becomes impure. Whether it has a receptacle area, such as a pot or a kettle, whether it doesn't, such as a knife or a scissors. Furthermore, even a huge container made out of metal. How do we in halacha measure huge? We talked about this extensively earlier. We measure huge. Can it take on more than 40 sa'a? The 40 sa'a is a measure we defined a few chapters ago. That's the minimum mikvah measure. If somebody will get me the kahat I'll give you the exact measure. It takes on impurity because it's huge, despite the fact that it's huge, because it's metal. Shenem, as it says, any object that comes in contact with fire, meaning any object. A saw is 2.18 gallons. 2.18 gallons. That's a saw. So I have here my handy-dandy iPhone, which also has a calculator. So I have 2.18 times 40 is 87.2 gallons. That's 40 saw, according to the kahat as it says, any object that will come in contact with fire, even a large, huge metal object. Yud, cleats, stuff made out of wood, utensils made out of wood. Next category, leather, bone if they have receptacles, like an eating trough, or a drinking pouch, which contains stuff, biblically they take on impurity, but the flat objects made of wood, leather and bone, to gain, for example, halukhais, tablets, behakise, or a chair, which doesn't have a receptacle area, or Leather, like a leather mat, do not take on impurity, only rabbinically. So rabbinically, it does. from all utensils of wood, from tradition we learn. Masok, just like a sack. If it has a receptacle area, everything else, it has to have the receptacle area. And boneware always has the same law apply to wood. That the impurity that comes upon it is rabbinic, with all other forms of impurity. With the exception of, the pressure applied, the impurity coming from a zob. 
but the impurities become a zov, which is a special rule. We learned earlier that when we talk about zov, we talk about four categories. Zov, zovo, nido, yuletus. Nistamin, minatayr, they do take on impurity, even biblically. Shanema, kol, hamishkov, ashayishkov, anything, the zov, and the other categories will lie upon. Kol, hosi, lamishkov, anything made for laying down upon a lamishkov or Writing, we learned earlier, sitting, and they should be on, as we explained. Glassware, which is made for laying down, this not in Bibidus, do take on impurity with pressure of his the brain rabbinically. So, basically, the rabbinic law of glassware has the same across the board law as the subject we're talking about now. Eleven, what about articles that are woven? Kosha, who ordered wovenware, maybe it's semi whether it's made out of wool or linen, maybe it's or it's made out of, he translates it here as hemp, others translated as canvas, maybe meshi or linen, flax, anything else that grows on dry land, all of the above is referred to for the purpose of impurity as a garment. So we have wool, linen, hemp or canvas, silk, or any other fabric that grows on the land. And here the Rambam says, felt, F-E-L-T, like garments, like every other law. He defines here in the Mosnayim Rambam, Rolls of wool, felt are rolls of wool that are compressed together to form a fabric. That's what he refers to as felt here. You base 12 out of 13. Hasak. What about sackcloth? This refers to threads of hair that are braided like a chain or woven like garments. Whether it's made from goat's hair, or from camel hair. Maybe it's not a susport from horse hair. Where does a horse have hair? The tail of a horse. Or a cow, the tail of a cow. Or any animal. Like sacks. Or they're braided like a band, like a donkey, of a donkey, like a band for donkeys, or similar. But if we're talking about ropes, and strands used to pull, which are woven, whether from here, maybe it's sandal, or wool or linen, ain't on the the fact that it's a rope is not enough to make it susceptible to impurity. Halacha 13, the closing law of this opening chapter of Kalim. Any utensils made, and here the Rambam gives a big list. So I'm going to read the Hebrew first. From Reeds from willow branches, aroba is what we use on sukkahs, called aroba. Umin hakonim, from bulrush, umin kapis tomorrow, from date branches, umin olim, from leaves. We have and branches, uklape ilones, the bark of a tree, umin achelef, or grasses, to get a kififais. For example, small baskets, vahatraxlin, large baskets, vahamachlatsois, rugs, vahamachlatsois, mats, hakel, bechlal, kliates. All of the above are included in utensils made of wood, because they're all wood grown, they're all vegetation. Shakel, Godil, you know, it all grows from the ground like a tree. Echad whether it's an earthenware vessel, Echad Or, here he has a new object, a sandstone utensil. The Chol Dabar are similar for all purposes. Chol Kli, Any, give me a second here. He says the translation of sandstone, sandstone comes from the Rambam's commentary to the Mishnah, where he explains this term referring to a soft stone, a blue color, that is easily dissolved in water and is used to wash hair or clothes. And our sages usually refer to Neser, and we had it many times in the Rambam earlier, as a detergent. The laws of Nida, the laws of blood, Nessar was one of those detergents. Any utensil that's made from earth or sand, and then is burned in a kiln or in an oven, this is the definition of an earthenware vessel, something that is processed. It has its origin from the earth, but then it's processed and baked. What about an oven, a range, or similar? Anything you can buy from the appliance department in Costco. Anything you bake in, oven, stove, range, and the Vashon Namar Kukin, they can all take on impurity. We learned many examples earlier of ovens and stoves and ranges. And the type of impurity is an earthenware type of impurity, because they're basically made from an earthenware type of material. So the object has to be within it. End of chapter 1. Rambam, Mishnah Torah, Hilchah is the laws of Kalim. The laws pertaining to utensils, containers, furniture, weapons, vessels, and all kinds of stuff, and how the laws of purity and impurity relate to them. And in chapter 1, the previous chapter, we built the building, so to speak. We laid down the fundamental principles of the laws of utensils. Now we get into some basic building block details, and it's really fantastic if you focus and you keep up with it. 
the Rambam begins. And again, much of what the Rambam says is based on the Mishnah. There are 30 chapters of Mishnah on Kalim. The Rambam says, We learned earlier that one of the conditions that help a utensil be able to take on impurity is if it has a receptacle. For example, a soup plate it has a receptacle. It receives soup. Or you have sometimes a utensil that's flat, like a mat. A mat does not have a receptacle. If somebody makes a utensil that has a receptacle, it can and does take on impurity no matter the size of the receptacle which means size does not matter even a tiny receptacle is a receptacle the size is irrelevant and this is an important principle in this chapter there is no minimum size for the receptacle of a utensil to make it a receptacle provided that it has to be made of a substance which will be of a permanent substance you can't make it of a substance that will quickly disappear it has to be a substance that has staying power it has to have continuity. Ketzat, for example. If somebody makes a utensil, from hide, animal hide, hamatzah, he uses the word hamatzah. The word matzah comes from Pesach, matzah. What does matzah have to do with animal hide? Just as matzah is simply water and flour, the animal hide was not refined. It was not produced. It was not developed. Nothing was done to the hide in order to make from animal hide. To make leather is a whole process. This was raw hide. That's why he calls it air hamatzah, raw hide. Shalein is abed klau, where it was not processed, unprocessed hide. So, he makes a receptacle of sorts. He makes a paper receptacle of sorts. Even though in general, paper on its own is not one of the materials that necessarily takes on impurity. It's also not one of the materials that does not take on impurity. Remember, we learned earlier three materials that do not take on impurity. And they are turds, stoneware, and earth. Or mud. So, this is paper, which doesn't, but maybe does. Or, from the shells of a pomegranate, of nuts or acorns. Somebody hollowed out the shells of a pomegranate, or nuts or acorns. And it doesn't matter who hollowed it out, and why they hollowed it out. Even if children hollowed out these shells, long they go him to measure, that's all for, you know, they're playing in the sand on the beach. So they took a couple shells, hollowed them out to measure the dirt, to measure the sand. Or they were prepared to be used for scales. Well, if you have a hollow shell of a pomegranate, you have two of them, you have a scale. All of the above are receptacles, and they do take on a state of impurity. Now, we learned this much earlier, and he's repeating it here again, and he's going to talk about it much later. This is an important principle in Torah. That when a person thinks he's going to do something with something, very often that thought process alone is important. For example, we learned earlier, if somebody thinks that food is going to be food, it's already in the category of food for the purposes of impurity. But when it comes to children, when it comes to people who are not mentally mature, when it comes to people who are not of majority age, when it comes to a deaf mute who's not considered mentally sound, their intent doesn't count in this world, in this realm. What counts, however, is their deeds. If they do something, it's done. And therefore he says, even if children hollowed out these acorns, these nuts, these pomegranates, what difference does it make what children do? They're not of a majority age. Shekinik, had a shake to become because a child, or a deaf mute, or someone not mentally mature. Yes, what they do is important. It's their intent that doesn't change things. But here they did it. Even though their thought process does not count for these purposes. So therefore, even if children hollowed out the pomegranate, or a nut, or an acorn, it is considered a utensil. Even if children made a scale from a shell of the above species. Avel, however, on the other hand, if somebody creates a utensil from a dried turnip, or a dried esrog, or a squash, where at the time they were hollowed out to use as a measuring cup, or anything like it, they are pure. Why? You know, I did it this year. I took four esrogim that were in shul. I put them in my office in a basket. And uh, they're very small right now and hard. An esrog, once it's severed, when a lot of time goes on, it has no continuity. It dries up. It becomes hard as a rock and tiny. Therefore, because it has no longevity, it can't last for a long time. They can only remain for a short amount of time. So that the above 
species, a dry turnip, an esrug, a squash, hollowing them out doesn't mean anything because there's no longevity to this utensil. Whereas the acorn shell, the pomegranate shell, pomegranate shell, or the nutshell does have longevity. I took the esrogum, I, I gave it to the gentleman from whom I bought the esrog, I said I want a refund. And uh, he wasn't very forthcoming, in fact he's sitting here in class. Somebody should talk to him, I could use the money. Okay, base, do. This is a very interesting paragraph, I mean they're all interesting, but especially this one, again, based in the Mishnah. Kadeh Meiz all of you following the horizontal rod of a scale. And you, so you should see a diagram. We had a diagram passed out. I need to do some zooming. Zoom, gali, 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 zoom, gali, gali. Okay. This diagram, like many of these diagrams, comes from the commentary of the Rambam in the Mishnah. On the Mishnah. Go back a little bit. So here is a scale. A scale has two receptacles with a rod going across holding them. Okay, so what's, what's the issue? Uh-huh. So he says, Here, the Rambam, taken from the Mishnah, gives you a list of things that con men will do. That unscrupulous people will do. So here is a storekeeper or a peddler who takes his scale, give me again, who takes his scale, and what he does on one end of the scale is he weights it. He sticks a little weight in this rod so that the scale is naturally weighted down to the side that will make him make more money. So he's cheating, but nobody knows it, except God. Or a mochok. What's a mochok? A mochok is a leveler when they would sell flour, and they would take this black rod to use as a leveler. He puts a weight at one end of it so it sinks into the flour. If it sinks into the flour, then he has to give the guy less flour. Sheyeshbohem base kibo matachas. Where? There is a receptacle where metal could be placed. Why is he placing metal? Because it has weight. And he wants to cheat his customers. Umakel, I'm sorry, no. There's a peddler who has a peddler's pole. And in the pole he has a secret compartment where he stores money. So he's negotiating the deal, and the guy gives him money. It's a complicated deal. And he slips his money surreptitiously into the secret compartment of the pole. And then he says, by the way, you didn't pay me. The guy says, I paid you. He says, where? Where's the money? Where? Where? So today they would play back the video. But I think this was before there was video. So the guy gets paid twice. I mean, why not? It's a living. So again, you have a receptacle in this pole. We're not interested here in are you allowed to steal or you're not allowed to steal. Of course you're not allowed to steal. We're interested now in whether these items can become susceptible to impurity or not. Are they receptacles? That's our narrow interest here. And throughout Halakha, we're not talking about the act. The act is disgusting. But we're talking about the receptacle. The corner shall or a wooden pole that has a place where water is stored. And this talks about beggars who would go and they would say, they're dying of thirst. Give me some water. They're dying of hunger. I haven't eaten for three days. And here they have water st- stored in their beggar's uh, walking stick or pole so that when they get out of sight, they can have a nice drink. Because all they're looking to do is, is make a hit. So they have a secret water compartment. is actually in the Mishnah where the Rambam takes this from. The Mishnah says it's slightly different. The Mishnah says a walking stick. Somebody has a walking stick. And in the walking stick, he has a receptacle area, a secret compartment, where he keeps a mezuzah and a precious stone like a pearl. Why does he do that? Because he doesn't want to pay tax on the pearl when he goes for customs. He wants to treat the customs. He wants to cheat the customs. The Rambam says that he has a mezuzah or a receptacle where he keeps a mezuzah or a pearl. The Rambam has it as two different parts. Why would he have a mezuzah? So this is not one of the cheating things. He has a mezuzah because somebody told him it's muzzle. It's good luck to travel with a mezuzah. So he puts it like people today. Many people today said it's a good idea to take a mezuzah and put it in the glove compartment of your car. It offers protection even though it's not a doorway. People used to keep mezuzahs in their walking stand. Or he has a secret compartment where he keeps a pearl, a precious stone. Again, what we're looking for is are these compartments, are these receptacles? Or you have a wooden sharpener, meaning a knife sharpener, and again, commentaries explain. If you have a knife sharpener made out of stone, stone never takes on impurity. If you have a knife sharpener made out of metal, metal always takes on impurity. What we're talking about is a wood, where if it's a receptacle, it takes on impurity. If it's not, it doesn't. What kind of receptacle does a knife sharpener made out of wood have? It has a receptacle where you keep the, what is it called, the W3 oil? The, what is it called, the oil? W, no, the oil that you put on stuff so that it doesn't uh, get stuck. Huh? Or whatever. Or if you have a tablet... A wooden writing tablet, we're not talking about the computer tablet. A writing tablet, which has a receptacle where you keep the wax. They used to seal their documents with wax. So you have a writing tablet in the tablet, it's a compartment for wax. Says the Rambam, call a law the above. Okay, it's or anything similar. Even though they are simple utensils of wood without receptacles. Hell, yes, one buys cultural. Being that they have these tiny, in many cases, miniature receptacles. I mean, how big is a receptacle for a pearl? 
Depends how big the probe is, but how big is the probe? Not too big. How big is it? These are all small. The Kabbalah and Tumas Dintayr, by Torah law, size of the receptacle is irrelevant. The ain't Tommy Minatayr, Elvis Kibble about biblically, only the receptacle area becomes impure. Sheyesh one which exists in this. Shamash is Besa Kibble, and the area around it which serves it, Bishanakli from the rest of the utensils of Besa Kibble, Torah law, which the receptacle area needs, the immediate area. Abel, Hayoser, Allah, Sayyid, Mishakli, Aboshin, but biblically, from the Torah law. The rest of the utensil that's not immediately adjacent to the receptacle area, Tahir Minatayr, by Torah law, it's pure. Because it's not the immediate area of the receptacle. The Tomei Midibrein, but by rabbinic law, as we learned earlier, chapter 1, halacha 10, by rabbinic law, even a flat wooden surface is impure, Kamesha Biyarnu, as we explained, by rabbinic law, not by biblical law. And I'll, I'll just quote from chapter 110. Abel but the flat objects made out of wood, leather, and boneware, such as tablets, chairs, and so on, and, and mats, do not receive impurity. By Torah law, do by rabbinic law. So therefore, the whole area does receive impurity by rabbinic law. Gimel, now, it's interesting. I was looking at the Mishnah from which the Rambam comes, from this where this halacha comes, about all of these kanyan and all of these cheats. And we're analyzing whether they're, they're receptacles, are receptacles or not. There's a very famous rabbi who says in the Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan ben says, I'm not sure, woe is to me if I teach this, because I'm going to teach kanyan, con conditions, I'm going to teach them how to con Woe is to me if I don't teach it. They have to know that we're on to them. So there was a, actually a debate in the Mishnah. Should we teach this stuff? Should we teach people how to cheat? Because here all these receptacles and secret compartments are really stuff that is put in there and all these weights and to cheat people, to cheat whatever. Says Rabbi Yochanan Bazak, I was really struggling whether I should or I shouldn't, but in the end I decided I have to teach Torah. Okay. Gimel, three. Base kibble, a receptacle that is created to fill, which means it's not going to be empty for very long. Ain't a base kibble, is not called a receptacle. Okay, so for example, the calculates if you have a block of wood. Shechikim, base kibble, where? You carve out a receptacle area in that block of wood. And then you put a metal anvil in this. A metal anvil is a piece of metal that a blacksmith, for example, works on. He strikes on that anvil. So you have wood. You create an area where you put the anvil in. So that receptacle is not called a receptacle because it's made to put the anvil in. So he says it depends what kind of block of wood and what kind of anvil. What it's used for. In shall not me if it's used by a blacksmith. Blacksmith is by and large not going to take out the anvil. He doesn't care what's under it. And on the cabela's it cannot, it does not take on impurity because it's there. There is no receptacle. The receptacle is filled with the anvil. Even though it has this receptacle area carved out in the wood, it's made to fill with the anvil. Or anything similar. But if it belonged to a jeweler, did you ever hear of a company called Hatsorfim? The jeweler. They deal with jewelry. They deal with precious metals. The jeweler who works on his anvil, he's very interested in the surplus silver or gold that falls on the sides of the anvil. They're going to pick up the metal. All the time she uses whatever they want to the cops and they'll collect. They'll collect the filings, the dust of gold, which collects under the anvil. So therefore it is a receptacle. Or anything similar. So actually the use of this anvil and the block of wood it's in is what determines whether it becomes impure or does not become impure. I'll be correct what I said, whether it can become impure or not. What we're talking about is, is it a material that can take on impurity? One of the things that makes a utensil take on impurity is the fact that it has a receptacle. Dalid, this is something we commonly use, hakap. A cup is carved out and placed below the leg of beds. You have a bed, or you have a piece of furniture, and you have a little cup that sits under the leg so the leg doesn't dig into your floor. So this cup is a cup. Is it a receptacle? Or these little cups or caps that are made to sit under the legs of a chest, a large chest, or anything similar, even though it's clearly a receptacle, there's no question about it. Nevertheless, try it, it is pure. Why? Because it's not made ever to become a receptacle. You stick it under the foot of the bed, and that's where it is for the rest of its life. Forever. And forever is a very long time. The aim of the kibble, therefore, it's not considered a receptacle. The shayna also the kibble, but it's not made to receive anything. It's made more for support. And supports are not receptacles. Now comes an interesting question. A hollow piece of straw, a pipe made out of straw. It can and does take on impurity. Straw comes from the ground. It's considered like wood. Like any other wooden material. And what would this be used for, for example, for a container for a mezuzah? Or a container for everything. It's, it's lightweight, and it encompasses something. 
Even if this item, this straw, can only receive one drop of something, let's say you have a straw, in it you're going to put a drop of oil. And that's all it can hold. We said earlier that the amount, the size doesn't matter. Receptacles are receptacle, regardless of size. Or the pipe of a reed, which was made for receptacle, when it comes to a reed, there's a white sap that has to be removed from the inside of the reed. If you don't remove the white sap, then it can't be used as a solid receptacle because that white sap is going to go all over the place. So you have to process it. Now we like that called but if it's not cut it for a receptacle, it's like a simple wooden tablet, but the tablet that is made out of, he translates here, as gold, they're not utensils, they're more like food. And here he talks about a cut straw. He places a mezuzah into the cut straw. It's like we have a mezuzah case. And then he put it on the wall or in the wall. Even if you put the case, not in the way that it could receive. Let's say, put it, let's say the case is made so it has a bottom. So the mezuzah can't slide past the bottom. And he put it upside down and there's no bottom. Even though it can't be practically used for receptacle because it was put it upside down, it does receive impurity. What if he fixed it into the wall? If he fixed it permanently into the wall in its receptacle direction, then it can receive impurity. But if he put it upside down, it is pure. Why? Because here it's permanent in the wall and it's not a receptacle. What if he put it into the wall and then placed the mezuzah in it? If it was as it should be receiving, then it can't take on impurity. But if it's not, if he fixed it, even if it's as a receptacle direction, it is pure because it's in the wall and it's not any longer a receptacle. It's now part of the building. Vov, six, clean, a utensil. Which is woven from pieces of wood. Or from sham, he translates sham here as cork. From wood or cork. What is this woven entity all about? They want to spread garments on it. Then they want to put incense or spice or stuff you smoke under it. Why? So the garments will have a beautiful aroma. So they smoke the incense beneath and they have this thing woven which the garments sit on so that the smoke can get through. The aroma can get through. It's not solid. If it's made like a beehive that does not have a solid bottom, then it's pure. Again, the, the, the smoke, the aroma should be able to get through. But if it has a covered receptacle, then it does receive impurity because then it's a real receptacle. Zion, a metal foot covering for an animal. If it's made out of metal, then it's impure. But if it's made out of cork, it's pure. Because cork is not considered a good receptacle, probably because it is not a lasting entity. The closing paragraph of chapter 2. What if somebody bundles up a pearl? You have a pearl, an expensive pearl. And he bundles it tight in a piece of leather. And then, after being there for a long time, it created an indentation in the leather. He took it out. And what remained was an indentation. Voila, you now have a receptacle. But it's only tiny. Tiny is fine. Again, we began with the laws of receptacle. Size does not matter. In so many other halakhic issues, size matters. Here, size does not matter. Until it flattens out, and there's no more indentation. He repeats the axiom. All utensils which have receptacles can become susceptible to defilement no matter how big the receptacle area is. Tiny. A pearl is pretty tiny. It becomes a little pocket. So little pocket, big pocket is all the same. On the other hand, when somebody took coins and wrapped them in a piece of hide and a piece of leather, that already, once you remove the coins, does not take on upon itself impurity. Because the fact that you wrap the coins in a piece of leather, it doesn't leave it shaped like a receptacle. Whereas the pearl made an indentation in the leather and shaped it like a receptacle. End of chapter 2.